Hey, if you're laughing, I know whose eyes aren't closed when we're praying. I don't know how I ever expect my golf game to improve when I cannot get this into my mouth. I'm up here wiping myself off. (laughs) Good grief. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, hmm, indeed. Go figure. Well, this is the period between Christmas and New Year's. From from my earliest memories on, was a time of year that I just, just couldn't stand. Yeah. And I don't ever remember being a depressive type individual, okay, especially as a child. But if I was, I guess the way I felt during this, this week between these two, one real holiday, one holiday, as far as I'm concerned... That's when I would go down because what happens, right? Everything in the world changes. You go into the stores, the music has changed already. The displays have started to change. Wednesday I was in Hannaford and I couldn't go through one aisle. Why? Because of these red heart things and everything that were going up on the shelves in the special displays for the next pseudo holiday. (laughs) Anything for a buck, right? So gentlemen... You have my permission to forget Valentine's Day this year. Oh, no, no, I, 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 I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. Now you're going to have to double up, see? Well, Pastor Bill said, no, no, don't go there. So it's the week that, at least in my household, Christmas stuff starts kind of coming down. And my mother's rule was that the tree stays up till New Year's Day. And the day after New Year's, man, that tree is out the door. Which is saying something, because we had an artificial tree. But No, we always had a real tree, still have a real tree. One day there was a time when I said, I will never have a cell phone, so I'm not going to say that I will never have an artificial tree. But, so this week, the decorations started coming down. I came home Thursday afternoon, Barbara's off on Thursdays, and I walked in. I knew it was coming to see the bare Christmas tree. Still in the stand, but just denuded of all its splendor and its beauty. And I just, yes, denuded. And I just stood there like this going. And bless this woman. She came up to me and said, I can put the stuff back on it if you want. Yeah, she's a keeper, I'm telling you. 43 years and going. Well, anyway, I, and then it leads up to New Year's. And, you know, in the New Year's, I never enjoyed this holiday thing called New Year's or even the celebration. For one, as a teenager, I have never been a night person. Yeah. So this idea of staying up till midnight, even as a teen, I'm like, okay, and why are we doing this? I remember my mom telling me, we're going to watch the ball drop. Okay, I'm thinking, well, that sounds cool, right? Little kid, what are you picturing, right? You see this massive congregation in, in Times Square, and I'm waiting for this ball, you know? I'm not even sure what it was, but I know it's up there, so I'm waiting for it to go, that's got to be cool. And so here comes the ball. And I'm like, Mom, when's the ball going to drop? She's like, the ball's dropping. 
I'm like, no, that ain't dropping. That may have been the last time I ever stayed up to watch the ball drop. But So anyway, New Year's. We come into New Year's, and what is the one thing? If I were to give you one of those tests where, say, the first thing that comes into your mind, and I said to you, New Year's, would it be resolutions? If it's not, humor me and say, oh, yeah, of course, Pastor, resolutions. Well, I did a little, uh, a little research here on uh, Googling, um, but I'm not there yet. Uh, so, you know, Times Square, right? And by the way, we were in bed last night by, I don't know, 10.30? You were in bed by 10.30, right? The lights were out when you came up. Yeah, anyway. Even as a teenager, a good friend of mine named Jim Lutz, Barb knew Jim. Oh, why are you laughing? Jim was not a moral person, okay? And you'll see why I'm saying this. Even by teen standards, he was not a moral person. Jim, in his senior year, I'm thinking it had to be a senior year, went to Times Square for New Year's Eve. Yeah. And when Jim came back, he was telling me about it, and Jim, this immoral teenager, was disgusted by the, the, the debauchery and the open, you name it, that was taking place in the throngs of these tens of thousands of people, even hundreds of thousands And that was in 1971. So I've never had a fond affection for this thing called New Year's Eve. And then, as I said, you know, the piece de resistance of New Year's is this thing called resolutions. You know, about half, now we can have the first chart, about half of the population, 45%, okay, makes resolutions, What I find really kind of interesting is that 8% of those, what's it say, are successful in achieving their resolutions. Boy, that's, that's, that's a low percentage. Then we come down here and we look at the rates of the age of success. And, okay, people in their 20s achieve their resolution, about 39% achieve them. I'm not going to go into what their resolutions probably are like, okay? And then you got the geezers, okay? Me and uh, some of you others who are over 50, okay? About 14% of us actually fulfill our resolutions. But what I found really interesting was that of the people who make resolutions, 75%, which means only, or which means 25%. Now this is number in the millions, half the half the adult population, right? 25% don't make it past the first week. <laughs> so for all of Ben's talking about bulking up and losing and bulking down and everything else, well, 25% of you by next weekend are already going to be shot. Be encouraged. But that means that 75% hang in there <laughs> through the first week anyway. And then it's about half of those people who made resolutions make it to the six-month mark. Next chart. Ben mentioned, he nailed it, and he know what I was talking about. The top resolution has to do with losing weight. Now, why would that be on the heels of Thanksgiving and Christmas? So that seems to be a perennial uh, number one. Getting organized, that, I wouldn't have guessed that. That kind of surprised me. 
And then number three, again, doesn't surprise me, spend less, yeah, after Christmas, and save more. Well, I know from reading all kinds of other things, I subscribe to Money Magazine, which is about what? Money. And, uh, yeah, Americans don't do real well in the saving more area because that requires saying no to yourself. And we're not real good at doing that. Well, many years ago, I made this statement in a sermon on a Sunday morning way back on Rice Rips Road. And I don't know where I heard it from. It wasn't, you know, my doing. The statement goes, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. I can't tell you how many times over the years and even up to current, somebody somewhere will say to me or they'll text me something in some context and say, well, you know, if you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. It's like, wow, that really made an impact. Another way of saying this kind of a a corollary of what is kind of an axiom is that you've heard the definition of insanity. It's repeating the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I had an insanity moment on Thursday when I was trying to uh, buy and download a song from iTunes so I could practice it today. So the song that we did, Strong God, the last song that we did, which is why I stunk on this song because I bought it. It gave me the last window saying, are you sure you want to buy this? And you go, yes. And then I start hunting for it on iTunes and it's not there. And I plug in my phone and I back up the phone and everything else thinking it'll be in there. It's not in my phone. So what do I do? Well, maybe I didn't really buy it. So I go back on and I go through all the rigmarole again, come to the last window. Do you really want to buy this? Yes, I want to buy it. It's nowhere to be found. So I'm ready to go for a third time. And then it hits me, you numbskull, what's your sermon today? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I could have ended up being billed for 364 songs of the same song. I don't know, but, and I still don't know where the song is. Nor do I know if I even bought it. Technology. This morning, as Pastor Ben said, we are on the threshold of a new year. And what is the salutation du jour? Happy New Year. That's okay. I mean, it's it's better than mediocre New Year. (laughs) Okay? Right? Or for the cynic, hey, uh, tolerable New Year to you. (laughs) Just use that during the rest of the week here and see how, how those things fly. But I would rather, I would rather, at least we said something along the lines of a blessed new year. Because that at least, at least gives some kind of credence that there is a significant other, a higher power or whatever, because only God alone can truly bless anybody. And so to me that makes a little more sense. Well, whether or not we have a blessed new year has a great deal to do with how we live and how we will live in this next year. But let me say, as soon as I've said that, really quickly, if it were possible for each one of us to live the next 364, 65 counting today, if we were able to live the next 365 days absolutely perfectly, and I mean perfectly as God defines perfection, we can't, but even if we could, that does not guarantee 
a happy new year. And why is that? Because we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world where according to Matthew 5, I believe it is, Matthew tells us that God causes the sun to shine on the good and the evil, and he also causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. We live in a world that is unjust. And so good things, as we all know too well, good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. Truth be told, however, comma, in my experience, in 30 years, over 30 years of pastoral counseling and just being a pastor and all that that entails, our frustrations, our aches, many of them, our pains, many of them, our financial distress, almost all of them, our marital distress, our physical and our mental health, and our overall satisfaction with our lives in general are brought on largely by our habits, by our choices, by our decisions, our behaviors, and our priorities. Well, one of the keys, if I may be so bold, to succeeding, or maybe it'd be a better way to put it would be to not stumbling where many stumble, is by intentionally learning from others' mistakes. I mean, Ed, you want to talk basics, learn from others' mistakes. Why is it? And yeah, I have the theological answers and I have the spiritual answers, but it still boggles my mind how I can be talking to somebody who is now a third generation from a family where previous three generations have all had the same dysfunction, the same bad habits, the same wretched lifestyle where it seems like they live constantly under a cloud. Why is it? And here they are repeating the same behaviors that they have seen for three generations generations before them. Why is it so hard to learn from others' mistakes? When I entered the army, I determined that I was going to learn from others' mistakes. And so there I am in basic training, talk about a new world, Fort Polk, Louisiana. And I'd see the guys up there, my whole unit, or at least my, uh, my uh, yeah, whatever, well, I can't think of the word. Sorry, General. <laughs> I know, General. Boy, is that intimidating. I said, I'm going to learn from these guys. Well, they were all from Chicago, in inner city Chicago, and this was when the draft was still on, so many of them were there because they had a choice of going to jail or going in the Army. <laughs> and so we'd be out there in formation, the drill sergeant would come up, and, you know, drill sergeants, their job is to try and get under your skin to try and break you. And so even though sometimes, you know, I would, honestly, I just want to laugh. I mean, because I'm seeing guys and listening to the guys get really upset at some knuckleheaded drill sergeant who's standing there in the face going, what are you smirking about? Don't you know that Jody's got your girl and gone? You don't need to be worrying about Jody. And he's sitting there, man, and they're getting all upset about Jody. In case you don't know who Jody is, ask the general. Anyway... And these guys are getting upset, which the drill sergeants love. And then they end up getting in trouble and extra duty and penalty and all that sort of stuff. And I was standing there and realized that, you know what, you've got to pretend like you're afraid of these guys. Okay? 
And I mean, there was a healthy fear. Don't misunderstand me. This was before the days of, of, uh, of you know, giving us seat cushions to sit in in the mess hall and stuff like that when the drill sergeants weren't allowed to manhandle you, but they did because they could. And so a drill sergeant would come up, and I'd be like, oh, oh. and didn't they love that? But they also left you alone. Learn from other people's mistakes. And then I became a Christian about a year and a half into the Army. And one of the things that I learned early on was this discipline of spending time with the Lord regularly, daily, in his word, reading through the Bible, cover to cover, in a year's time. And so I was diligently reading the scriptures and even more to get through because, you know, sometimes in the military you don't have a whole lot going on or to do. And so I would read the Bible. And one of the virtues in reading God's word isn't just the perfect counsel that he gives according to Second Peter for all things pertaining to life and godliness, but one of the great virtues I find in, walk, in reading through the scriptures are reading the lives of real people who were just like me and sometimes worse, sometimes better, but looking at their lives and looking at how they lived their lives and their reactions to circumstances and all and seeing how so often they blew it when it came to just living and making good decisions. And I thought, you know what? I can learn something from these people. I cannot repeat the dumb things that they've done. And as I was thinking about, okay, so what's an example of that? Well, first person to come to mind is Jonah. And I think I, that was good because I think, you know, many of you are, are uh, familiar with Jonah. And uh, so one of the things that I also learned was that in the book of Hebrews, we're told that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. So painful though it may be, the fact that God's attention is on us and he's working in our lives in uncomfortable ways is because he's trying to prevent something more serious coming our way. He is a God of love. And so I take that now and I go to Jonah and I read just a couple of verses in the opening chapter. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Again, we basically, I think we know at least the nuts and bolts of the story. God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, great. Travel agent? Book me on the first boat out of Joppa to Tarshish. Where's Tarshish? Nineveh's that way. Tarshish is that way. And Jonah says, got it, I'm gone. And God says, Jonah, I wanted you to go to Nineveh. He says, I know. And I went to Tarshish. He says, yeah, but you're supposed to be going to Nineveh. He says, I know, which is why I'm going to Tarshish. And so you know what happens. He's escaping, running from the Lord, which is a real easy thing to do. And the Lord whips up a storm and frustrates the sailors on the boat from going, and the ship is going to be swamped and wrecked, and they all know that. And they're all praying, interesting, praying to their own gods in their own ways. And Jonah is down in the hull of the ship until they wake him up. And he comes up, and Jonah fesses up and says, You know what? This is happening. 
because of me. And he says, all right, you guys got to throw me overboard, and the storm will settle down. You'll be saved. Pretty admirable thing for Jonah to do. And what's even more interesting is that these pagan sailors said, no. And what's it say? The text says they rode harder, but they couldn't. They couldn't get to land. They couldn't get out of harm's way. And so they finally go, yeah, Jonah, come here. I want you to look at something over the side of the boat. You should, look at it. There's a porpoise there. Jonah's in. So now Jonah gets swallowed by a big sea creature, traditionally a whale. We don't know what it was. And in the dark and the stench of the belly of this sea creature, the lights come about and Nona repents, more or less. And so the sea creature comes, and the sea creature, he's, you know, the sea creature, man, he's like going, whoa, man. <laughs> Mama told me not to eat things like that, but I get, <clears throat> and he spits Jonah up on dry land. And Jonah had to be a sight. And he had to smell great. But here he was now, thankful to be on dry ground, and he's ready to uh, listen to the Lord. First thing I want to note, though, about Jonah's poor decision to go opposite from where the Lord wanted him to be was it affected innocent people, the innocent bystanders, the sailors. When we make boneheaded decisions, it rarely affects only us. It affects all kinds of other people around us, either directly or indirectly. But like I said, Jonah sees the light from the darkness in the belly of the whale. And now in chapter 3, Jonah's on dry ground and God says, okay, let's try this again. Let's go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, sure, got it. I'll go to Nineveh, right? I'm not going to do that again, but I'll go to Nineveh because my you know, for Ninevites and you know, wretched people. He had a good attitude, man. But God pressed him, and he obeyed, and that was his free will. It doesn't violate free. God didn't violate his free will. He just compelled him to want to make the right decision. God does that out of mercy, and so Jonah goes into Nineveh, which would be like God sending any one of us onto the streets of Tehran with a big cross necklace on and standing out there and saying, Hey, you Iranians, repent or God is going to destroy you. So let's not be too hard on poor Jonah. What he was being asked to do was no small deal. So he goes because it was no small deal being swallowed up by this sea creature either. And so he goes, and amazingly, these Ninevites, who were the nasty of the nasties, they repent. They repent, and they call a national day of fasting, and they come to the Lord God all on their own. And Jonah, so blessed by the mercy of God to the nasty of nasties, says, Jehovah, you are amazing. I'm so sorry for being 
such a jerk and having doubts about you, what you're going to do with those nasty Ninevites. Thank you for saving them. Jonah was so ticked off that God spared them. And so you know the rest of that story. So there's Jonah. And God comes to him and says, Jonah, uh, is this a little hissy fit you're having? He says, that's right. I'm the front runner of the millennials. I'm not getting my way, and I've had it. And I just may hold my breath until you do something better that makes my life easier and better. God says, Jonah, do you do well being angry? And he says, I sure do, even angry enough to die. Well, there's Jonah for you. Jonah did obey God, and it did go better for him. But it was no cakewalk, and innocent people were affected by his decisions. Fortunately, that worked out okay. And thanks to the Lord God's mercy and his compelling Jonah to listen, the Ninevites fared okay for about, I forget how long, a lot of years. But then I want to look at another example from the scriptures of another life. Not an individual who, who like Jonah, had a hissy fit and obeyed eventually only after you know, great duress was placed upon him. But we go to earlier chapters of Genesis chapter 6, where God now is talking to Noah. And he says to Noah, we read in Genesis 6, beginning in verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. He's speaking about mankind. And behold, I'm about to destroy them from the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. And then he gives directions. And he says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Noah's faithfulness to the Lord's plans for him affected innocent bystanders for the good. His sons and his wife and his son's wives. So making bad decisions can affect everybody around you or a lot of people, or at least some people, making good decisions, the same thing. Two people, Jonah and Noah, with freedom of choice, but not freedom from the consequences of those choices. Noah listened and he built an ark. And by the way, if you think, boy, those are hardly analogous situations. I mean, come on. Compared to what Jonah was asked, what, ark, what uh, Noah was asked to do was nothing. Uh, don't be so quick about that. And I don't have a lot of time to go into details here. First picture, Kelly, please. Okay, this is the uh, actual rendering of the ark that's down in, what is it, Kentucky or Tennessee? Some guy built, according to the scriptures, the actual you know, things and everything else. So this, this is the ark. This is huge. Let's see the next picture. Okay, this gives you, and these are, I don't know if it's not clear up here. It should be clearer back there, though. 
Um, you can see the crane, okay, over here, and that I put that in to give perspective on how big we're talking here. Now, look at all the equipment and stuff. Noah was told to build this without all that equipment and technology. And he didn't have a whole lot of help. So we're not talking about building a little rowboat and get ready for some rain. Next picture. Again, this is just a view of the inside of the ark. Again, built to biblical proportions as they are spelled out and were spelled out for Noah. In addition to all that, we forget that it had not yet rained on the earth at all. So God says, I'm going to bring rain. You're going to bring what? Okay. And I'm going to raise a flood. Really? So imagine now this guy's building this thing of this proportion in all the people who were told later on in the New Testament kept on marrying and being given in marriage and meaning, meaning they just kind of continued on life. And you have to wonder, I remember in the kids' picture Bible, <laughs> great theology in there, you know. And you see the neighbors, you know, they're like going, no, you're such a moron. What are you doing building the fire? There's no water around here, much less a fly. And all that, Noah continued to just stay the course. And if I screw his name up, you know I'm talking about Noah. The floods come, and of course Noah and his family are spared. Jonah didn't listen Noah did. Now, call me simplistic, but wouldn't Jonah have been ahead of the game if he just said, okay, to begin with? And you know what? Isn't it easy for me to say this and for us to sit here and think, and we're looking back. We're seeing the whole thing unfold. Jonah was just called, told to go to Nineveh. And he's like, what? No, they hate me. They will kill me. Furthermore, I hate them. Feelings mutual. But for all of Jonah's plannings and all of Jonah's efforts and all of the expense and the resources that Jonah had to expend spent on dodging what God wanted for him, he ended up where? Exactly, exactly, forgot, none of us that way, exactly where God wanted him in the first place. Why? Do we do this to ourselves? Why is it that we never seem to learn from others' mistakes? And even, even worse, my experience is that we don't learn from our own mistakes. And you know the thing about, you know, there's all these companies out there now that do credit card relief and, you know, they go to bat for you and they pay you a fee and they get your, your you know, your $18,000 credit card debt. That's just credit card debt, you know, narrowed down to like $6,000 or something like that. And they get it paid off. And I forget what the time period is, but it's a very short time that the vast majority of those people who have had credit card debt wind up exactly in the same place they were. Why can't we learn from our own mistakes? Well, let me spend the rest of our time getting practical, getting real. This is for what it's worth if you want to try it. Start out when you have some time thinking about it, making a list of only three to five things. And probably even three would be better than five and much better than ten. 
but three to five of the things that annoy you chronically that you've said to yourself, you know what, I, not this time. No, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a handle on this. I'm going to do it better. I'm going to do whatever it is that you want to do better, that you want to improve on, or that you want to eliminate completely. And as you do that, I'm going to give you what I call my million-dollar tip. One of the most compelling reasons for failure in any kind of life change or life situation is that we are engulfed by the symptoms, meaning the consequences, of our wretched choices, right? We've already been over that. And so what happens is those consequences, or I'll call them symptoms, the symptoms are what we focus on trying to alleviate because we live in them, we swim in them, and they always have our attention. And so what we do, if we do anything at all, is we put our attention on how do I get rid of the symptoms? And we focus on alleviating the consequence without eliminating the cause. And that will always be a losing situation. This is a sure formula for continued relapse. Think of it with a medical analogy. You are experiencing... Well, there you go. Sorry about that, Ronnie. Yeah, I know. I'm going to bend this thing into oblivion between services and get it to fit right. For months, you've been experiencing the symptoms of itchy eyes, a runny nose, sneezing, kind of a, a congestion and everything else, and you decide to do something about it, and you go see a, a medical practitioner. And the medical practitioner sees your symptoms and everything else, and they're all so nonspecific or so omnispecific, you know, and everything else, they're so general, that they start giving you three or four meds to treat and alleviate or mitigate the symptoms. And so you take the medicine that you have, and you're feeling pretty good because the symptoms, if not gone, are at least much better than they were. And then you run out of medicine. And what happens? The symptoms are right back again. Why? Because you are treating the symptom and not the cursed dust mite that is the problem. Oh, I know, right? I don't care how clean you are. You have these critters all over your house, in your carpeting, on your chairs, and on your pillows. They live. Aren't you thankful? Yes, on your pillows. Next cue. Oh, look at it. You might as well be sleeping on this big dust mite. <laughs> Aren't you glad that we can't see so many things? Be out there going to shake hands, right? Somebody go, hey, pastor, how you doing? Whoa, I'm looking at viruses and bacteria and pathogens all over the hands. Like, yeah, no, we're blessed by not being able to see some things. But if you want to get rid of a problem, you got to take care of those nasty creatures. One of the most compelling reasons to gain success in any life change is treating the cause, not the symptom. 
So now let's get biblical. Matthew chapter 6. If you read the proper pursuit of prosperity, as I know you have. This is in there. It's my life verse. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into 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 barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a, a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, well, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first. Seek first. There is the priority, not a priority, but the priority of successful living. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The priority. The very first step in changing the dismal death traps of your life is making God truly the highest priority of your life, of your life experience. This means letting God be pilot. I talked about this just a few weeks ago. Letting him be pilot, not co-pilot. Matthew 7, 21 says, Look, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says, Oh yeah, God's my pilot. I just have him sit in the co-pilot seat and I call all the shots until I run into trouble. Then I go, Hey God, take over. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter This means consulting the Lord God in the decisions of your life. And I'm not talking about what are you going to wear today. Talking about substantial decisions. And they can be little decisions and minor decisions, but decisions nonetheless. 2 Peter 1.3, right? I've already alluded to it. God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. His counsel, his wisdom, is there, which brings us to the next one. It means spending time with him on a regular basis. Psalm 119, 9-11, a verse I memorized a bazillion years ago in the army, in the King James, because that's the only Bible I had. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, you can't begin to live out that passage if you don't even know that that passage exists. We get that by spending time with him. 
It means praying for God's guidance. Philippians 4, 6. Have no concerns, no anxieties, depending on the translation. No heartburn. No anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. It means feeding your heart and mind with life-giving nourishment. Meaning touching on the areas of what we do in our spare time, what we do for recreation, how we occupy our minds with what sorts of things do we put into our, through our ears and our eyes and everything. It's all-encompassing. Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, if there is anything true, anything lovely, anything right, anything pure, anything of, of I'm screwing this all up, anything of, of excellence or anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. It means feeding your, I'm sorry, it means committing to a worship community. You say, well, duh. Oh, believe me, it's not duh in our culture today, and I'm not talking about out there. It is a huge problem in this body. A huge problem. God really is, more often than not, just an add-on when there's nothing better or nothing else going on. I could give you a real-life example from just two days ago. But I won't, because the person might be here. <laughs> Which if they are, it would be great. Hebrews ten twenty four and 25 says, Let us how to stimulate or provoke one another unto good works, not forsaking by, by gathering together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, as is the manner of some, but by exhorting each other and all the more as we see the day approaching. It's talking about regular corporate fellowship together. Do you know what the next verse is after Hebrews ten twenty four and 25? It's 26. Do you know what that says? It says, If we go on... Sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but the fearful prospect of judgment. Check it out. Interesting, the juxtapositioning of those three verses. And this isn't really a finally, coming to the end, bring your whole tithe into the storehouse of God. Malachi chapter 3, Haggai chapter 1, and then a whole bunch of correlative verses in the New Testament. Those of you who don't even know what a tithe is, it means 10% of your income goes to the Lord. And what Malachi 3 says and Haggai 1 says is that if you don't honor him in that and you are claiming to be his, it will grow wings and it will fly away. And you can work harder, was the lesson of Haggai 1, and you can pick up another job, and you can do all these sorts of things to try and, and get yourself out of debt by increasing uh, more income, which, which again, statistically, and by example, thank you, Money Magazine, that the people who manage to bring in more income, either through a pay raise or from an additional job, end up spending more than what they did in the first place, and so they continue to get even further in debt. And God says, you know what? There's, there's a rule here. There is a consequence of walking with me pay me now remember the old it was a it was an oil commercial like quaker oil or something the mechanic says you can pay me now or you can pay me later meaning come in and get your oil change and if you're too cheap to do the oil change i'll see you later when we got to do an engine job these aren't meant to be drive-by guiltings 
But let's face it, finances is one of the, not one of the actually, it is the number one marital stress of all stresses. The American church has become so self-absorbed with cheap grace, loving the gimme God that it has abandoned the holy God who says, obey me and live, disobey me and die. So when God doesn't behave in a manner that we demand, we are ready to, if not flat out, walk away from him, abandon him. We relegate him instead to a status of something that might be nice to explore or pay attention to if, as I said, nothing better is going on. Some worthy resolutions in light of this to consider. Number one, modeling This means living. Modeling the kind of lifestyle you hope your children or your grandchildren will imitate. They will catch what they see. Not so much what they hear. Second one, practicing the spiritual disciplines. Meaning what? Meaning regular time with the Lord meaning praying with your children and as a family, meaning demonstrating the church is vitally important, means honoring the Lord, as I said, with the first fruits of your produce. It means filling your soul with the good things of God. And finally, and this is finally now, it means contentment. Lack of contentment. This is PB 123. Lack of contentment is the root. Lack of contentment is the root of all greed. Love of money is the root of all evil. Lack of contentment is the root of all greed. And greed doesn't mean stashing up in bank accounts. It can certainly mean that. Greed means I got to have something else. I got, you know, I got this, but I got to have a new one. You know, my golf, my driver is two years old, man. My latest golf magazine says I can get four and a half more yards with a new $400 driver. I got to have that new driver. <laughs> Philippians 4.11, the Apostle Paul writes, and you talk about somebody modeling. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am, in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and of suffering need. And here comes the verse that we all love to quote and almost all the time completely void of context in which it occurs. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is directly related to being content. It is a supernatural endeavor. It is not within our genetic makeup to be happy and content with what we have. And fortunately, depending on your perspective, or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, we live in a country where we can easily self-gratify with virtually every whim, and wish almost every whim and wish that we want. 
which puts us further and further in debt. And you just see this big wheel going in a complete circle over and over again. You always do what you always did. You'll always get what you always got. If you are annoyed with certain aspects of your life and you are repeating the same thing over and over again, thinking, oh, I'm just going to pray harder about it. I'm going to do the same thing, but maybe there will be a different outcome. Now we're talking about being insane. (laughs) And by the way, all of these things, as I've already said, if you were to do them perfectly, still doesn't guarantee that your new new year will be smooth sailing for the reasons I already stated. But you will have a supernatural power as your resource to enable to handle what it is in ways that you've never handled before. Successfully, as God would define success. Let me have you stand. You remember Father Abraham? He was approached by God, and God said, Abraham, I want you to give, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. That's all he told him. And Abraham went, well, I guess you'll show me as I'm going here. Paul writes to the church at Rome about Abraham centuries later, verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 20. Yet with respect to the promise of God, referring to Abraham, he did not waver in his unbelief, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What will your new year be like? Only God knows. But we all have a great deal of influence on what that new year can and will be like. Father in heaven, I just pray. I pray, Lord, that if we only learned two things and genuinely eliminated two of the burdens, our chronic burdens that drag us down and drag us further from you, if we were to only conquer two of them this year, we would be so far ahead of where we seem to always be. And so I pray, not for our sakes and our comfort, but for your kingdom purposes. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.